0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Challenges That Change Us. Can you believe it? It's the start of 2024, a brand new year full of endless possibilities. I hope each of you are feeling energized and ready to conquer whatever challenges come your way. As we kick off this year together, I wanted to take a moment to connect. Reflecting on the past and looking ahead, there's a sense of anticipation in the air, isn't there? We've got a clean slate, a chance to set new goals, learn from past experiences, and embrace the opportunities that lay ahead. Now onto today's pod, I want to introduce you to Amy Parkinson, who is going to share with us a completely different experience to what we've had on the podcast so far. She will share with us her experience of leading a school camp for the first time and waking up only to find, well, not being able to find a student in the middle of the night. Can you imagine the panic that followed? I'm not going to give away the whole story, but there were so many moments in this episode that I thought of the teachers who are responsible for my children on school camps. I feel terrible that I've never once given consideration to what they might be stressing about before the camp starts, how heavy they might be feeling with all of that responsibility. I've always only thought about how tired they must be and how draining it must be to have so many kids running around. And this conversation really highlighted a different perspective. If you have a teacher in your friendship group or family, I highly recommend you sending this episode over to them as it is a topic I'm sure is not talked about enough. And as for the parents out there, this is a great listen. Amy spent over 12 years in the education system as both a school leader and an educator. She completed a master's in educational leadership and health plus a wellness coaching professional certificate. She now runs her own business, Wellnest, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-T, a coaching and consulting business for both the individual educator and whole school organizations. Not only that, she has this incredible podcast called The Wonders of Wellbeing. Once I started listening to that podcast, I couldn't stop. So if you've not checked it out, definitely jump over after this episode. On that note, let me introduce you to the woman herself. Hi, Amy, welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this morning, especially so close. You've got a big event coming up, so finding the time is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. What a pleasure it is. And, Amy, I love to start every episode with asking our guests What animal best describes them and what is it about that animal in particular? Like what are the traits that you're kind of drawn to or the people around you would use to describe you?
1: Such an interesting question. I actually called on my mum to help me with this one because I think sometimes other people's observations are are most powerful. So I said, hey, mum, if there was an animal, what animal would you use to describe me? And she said a lioness. She said because they're protective and they're strong and they're courageous and they're loyal. But most importantly, that they're gentle and and caring when they need to be with their tribe. So my emotional bonds with my tribe, with my people that are closest to me, is really strong connections, really deep connections. And that experience of love and, and empathy and that sense of belonging is so important to me in the people that I'm closest to. So I really resonated when she said that, that that is very much, you know, that strong and and out there kind of voiced opinions is there, no doubt, um, and those protective mechanisms. But at the same time, super protective and gentle with those closest to me for sure. I wonder if
0: she'd given you an animal that you didn't resonate with where you'd be like, all right, next person, what sort of animal yeah. do you use to
1: bear? Not <laughs> not to give me a good one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew that whatever she said I was going to go with because, you know, yeah. So... Yeah, lioness.
0: And Amy, maybe it's a really nice place to start for us to get to know you a little bit. Like you have been in the teaching world for quite some time. Do you want to maybe take us back to what made you decide to be a teacher in the first place?
1: Yeah, for sure. I actually started with event management when I left school. The career advisor at the time when I was 17 had said, you know, you've got all these qualities and, and traits of a good manager and you like events and you're social and all these things. So I think you'd be a great event manager. So I said, okay, sounds good. That looks fun. So I actually went to university and studied event management initially and soon realized probably two years in that. It just wasn't fulfilling me. It wasn't giving me meaning and purpose. It wasn't a life that I saw myself living. And I think I had always had teaching on my mind. I was always very bossy. Some would say still bossy, but I was always very bossy and all very teacher like and always reading books and pretending I was on playground duty out the back. And I just always was pretending to be a teacher. But I think when I left school, the thought of going back to school. Even though I had great experiences as a student at school, I couldn't imagine going back. I think the corporate world just looked and sounded so amazing that that was kind of the direction I wanted to go and soon realized that actually that wasn't for me. So I went back and studied my double bachelor's of of education and got straight into teaching from there. So it was a little bit of a windy route, but got there in the end.
0: And out of curiosity... Do you when you think back through your schooling career do you have that teacher in mind that you're like they were the bomb like they were the best or they took a moment just to connect in with me or was there someone like that that really inspired you and kind of when you think back through your experience they're like they were my favorite teacher.
1: Absolutely. Mrs. Brown, my grade two teacher. So we had been living, I was born in Sydney, but we actually moved to Melbourne for four years for my dad's work. And we moved back to Sydney in term four of year two. So I started a new school at an age where my friends in Melbourne were very important to me. And the thought that we were leaving was heartbreaking. I landed in this classroom with the most beautiful teacher who just took me under her wing, honestly, just as if I had been there forever. But at the same time, a girl in my class who ended up being a very good friend of mine sadly lost her mum and the way that that teacher cared for her and also cared for everyone else in the class to help this girl was so incredibly powerful and I just thought wow how much of an impact teachers have again I don't really remember how she taught what we taught like that kind of stuff I don't remember but I do remember her heart that has just always resonated and yeah I think that that was probably the first teacher that really made an impact. And and not just for me, but just me observing what she was doing for others was really powerful.
0: Do you know? I asked this question a lot. I used to ask it all the time in the counseling room. And I don't know that I've had very many people actually go back to junior school. Like so often it's high school because yeah. that's where our memories kind of sit. But yours is all the way yeah. back in grade two.
1: Yeah. A poignant time too, I think, just having moved and I only then went from that school to high school and then I stayed at the same school. So I think it was maybe the more the transition into a new state that was overwhelming at that time for me, maybe.
0: Maybe tell us a little bit about your teaching career because now you're doing podcasts and lots of other stuff. You have your own business, which we'll get to, but maybe just take us on that track of what your teaching career looked like.
1: Yeah, sure. So I was a classroom teacher and a school leader for 12 years, both here in Sydney and actually over in Japan, in Tokyo, and had some amazing experiences, had all the challenges that, that teaching has with it and went on and studied my Master's of Educational Leadership, had had a very, very keen interest in the well-being of staff for a really long time. But my passion for well-being started a long time ago and I've just slowly upskilled myself in the space of well-being, workplace well-being, health and wellness industries and ended up becoming a certified coach for health and wellness and an accredited practitioner for work on wellbeing. And I've used all my education background and all of these new credentials to actually form wellness. I also do have a podcast, The Wonders of Wellbeing, which I've had Ali on and yet yeah, sort of just grown from there. So I've just got so much passion, Ali, and a mission to make sure teachers are well. And that's just driven where wellness has gone and, and utilising the, the skills and, and things that I've learned through my career to support you know, what wellness is trying to do.
0: So good. And we will have a big chat Mm -hmm. at the end of the session about that as well. But what I'm really curious about was to maybe have a chat about some of the challenges that you faced during those 12 years. Was there one or two challenges that kind of jump out for you?
1: Yes. (laughs) When Ali first asked me about this and if I'd be interested to come on and I have never, ever been asked if I would like to go on to a podcast and share a challenge that I've had. So my first instinct was no. And then five <laughs> <Absolutely> seconds, <not. laughs> yeah, definitely not. No, find someone else. And then five seconds, five seconds later, I was like, hey, "Be brave, have a go." So I think something that I'd like to talk about and share is a challenge around the responsibility of a school leader on overnight camps in a school setting and and share an experience that I had and, and a challenge and kind of unpack that to hopefully help those that have had a similar experience to feel like they're not alone or for those that are about to encounter school camps to just share my experience
0: with them. What was it about that topic that made you think of that? Like maybe take us through the story.
1: Yeah, okay. So there's lots of challenges in education, of course, but I think this one hit me the most emotionally. And I think as a part of wellness, we, we support teachers emotionally for lots of reasons, because the education field is so based on relationships, which means that there's a lot of emotional exhaustion in the job. But this particular experience has stuck with me, really impacted me, taught me a lot. And it was all around the school at the time, at the very beginning of the school year, we had a sleepover in the school gym which is not uncommon. Lots of schools do it in like year two or year three. So they're really little, like seven, eight, nine-year-olds staying over school for the night. So this was at the very beginning of the school year. And for a lot of the students, it was the first time that they had ever slept away from home. So there's a lot of homesickness there. There was a lot of nervous energy in the room and there was a lot of preparation that went into making sure that everyone felt safe, that everyone was safe, but also that it was fun and that we kept them busy and all those kinds of things. So that's kind of what what it was. And it sort of started at midday and pretty much went through to 10am the next day and you just stay in the hall. So it's so much excitement for it. And the day rolled around and everything went really well. There was a lot of prep that went into it before and something that I was really fixated on, I was the leader of of that team at that time, so the responsibility did fall on me and whilst it is a shared responsibility, at the end of the day, the big decisions were mine and the responsibility was on me and I felt that very heavily. This particular cohort of students had a lot of medical needs and I remember as we were delegating and working out who was going to do what, I just said, I'm going to take the medication I think that's the biggest responsibility of of this whole thing and that's kind of my role and I, I will take that on and sort of delegated other things to other people and they sort of picked what they'd like to do and you know it was very collaborative but I said I'm happy to take their medication and I honestly think there was about 15 maybe 18 students that were on medication from when they got to school that day until they had to go home and it was all at different times for different reasons and in different bags and you know it was it was complicated in itself so the day went really well, it was filled with activities. We do dinner. We have a movie. They set up their little mattress and their sleeping bag in the hall and they got all their belongings and they clean their teeth together, which is so exciting and, you know, a whole bunch of things. Movie's on and then it's lights out. And, of course, there's so much energy still in the room that we wait and wait and wait for them to fall asleep. And there was one student who was finding it really hard to fall asleep he wasn't in my class he was new to the school so he'd only been at the school for a few weeks and he was on medication for a diagnosis and he was he was quite wired trying to go to sleep when you could just sort of see it in his eyes and he just seemed a little bit anxious and a little bit edgy but he didn't really communicate much he didn't really know how to share how he was feeling so myself and another colleague just stayed really calm sat with him waited for him to fall asleep gave him a bit of space came back and I think it got to about 11.30 and we both were like, he's he's asleep. Like without us tapping him and saying, are you asleep? We both felt like he was asleep. So all the other staff had gone to bed, all the staff were in separate rooms and I then went to bed. And to be honest, I'm not sure that I even fell asleep, but I remember it getting to about 1 o'clock in the morning and I decided to go to the bathroom. And I think something that I forgot to mention at the beginning was this was the first time I had ever led a camp or a sleepover. So I had been a leader in the younger years previously but never on a grade where we were staying over the night for the first time. So I was pretty edgy knowing that this was my first time I had done it. And I got up at 1 o'clock to go to the bathroom and I just decided to do a lap of the gym just to make sure that everyone was okay. And I noticed that this boy who had been unsettled when we all start, originally went to sleep, who had sort of his stuff everywhere, you know, he had his socks here and his shoes here and his bag here and his pillow here and his stuff was kind of everywhere, and I looked over and it was all gone. Everything was gone. Everything. Like everything was gone. That whole, it, was, it felt like half the hall was gone, but it was just his little space. And at first I was like, oh, he's moved. Like he's just picked up. Yeah, it's odd. He's moved. So I do another lap trying to find him. But of course, there's like 80, 80 bodies on the, on the gym floor. You know, so I'm like looking around, it's dark. They've got sleeping bags, hoodies on, you know, like whatever they've got. And I'm sort of like looking around and I'm like, I can't find him. Did another lap, did a third one. And by the third one, obviously I'm starting to be like, hang on a minute, what's happening here? Where could he be? And a colleague of mine that was actually a good friend of mine was on the camp as well. So I went and woke her up and I just said, I'm so sorry. I actually can't find blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what do you mean? I was like I don't know you know how he was unsettled before they went to sleep and I can't find him she's like oh okay so can you come and help me have a look she was like yeah yeah so she gets up does three laps can't find him so we checked the bathroom we had a little bit of a wander around on the level that we were at we were like maybe he's gone into like the classrooms were open on that level that maybe he's gone in you need a bit of space can't find him and it almost then went into panic mode so we woke all the staff up and there was probably eight of us we woke them all up and because it was so late in the night the school alarms were on but they're silent so the alarms weren't going off but the groundsman who lived on site obviously heard the alarm so he then came in but whilst he that all happened and he was coming in we thought where could he be where could he we went then down to his actual classroom like we were all trying to be really logistic and i then just had this moment of <gasps> Did I forget to medicate him? So he was on my medication list. I had checked, double checked, triple checked that list from what the parents gave me to what I had on my sheet to what time of the night it was and who needed medicate. Like I had triple checked that, but I went into <gasps> was I meant to medicate him before bed? And he's something like he's then, I don't know, right? My mind, the narratives I was telling myself was out of control. And the panic was coming, and we tried to call the senior school leader who like the senior leader of who wasn't at the camp, but was like the go-to person in an emergency three times, no answer. Who, of course, would have helped me make a decision of what we next do, but didn't answer. So another staff member had looked up their parents' address on our system just to see if like, does he live close as he walked home? like has he has he picked up his stuff? He knows where to go and he's walked home, and we looked and where he lived was not. Not super far, but definitely not walkable for an eight-year-old boy. And the panic was just, I just couldn't think. I was just, I was completely blank. And the groundsman had then come on to be like, what is going on? Like the alarms are going off. And we're like, we can't find a student. He's gone. And of course, everyone's reaction is, what do you mean? It's like, we don't know where he is. He was here. He's not. So I went downstairs and someone said, did he go out the front door? And again, I have this panic of, I didn't lock the front door. Holy shit. The door, front door wasn't locked, but I hadn't been down to the front door yet. So I ran down to the front door, pushed it, opens. Ali, I literally fell, I think it's the first time in my life I've been in actual shock. I fell to the ground on my knees And just thought I was just going to, like, literally just wanted to die there. And then I had visions of me in jail. Like, in all seriousness, I just went from zero to a million in, like, five seconds. And then, obviously, I had to gather myself. And I went upstairs. And I was like, the front door is open. And the groundsman was like, you can't lock any doors in the school. I was like, okay, even though, yes, the door, he could have gone out the front door. At least, again, that wasn't my responsibility that I didn't lock the front door. Like, I can't tell you how many things I checked, cross-checked, did. Like, there were so many things that I knew I had responsibility for. And I then remembered that in a meeting they had told me, you can't lock the doors. But in that moment, that conversation that I'd had had completely gone and I just went into full guilt that you didn't lock the doors. And then when the groundsman said, you can't lock them, I was like, that's right. I've had that conversation with the school that I can't lock the doors from the inside. They're locked from the outside but from the inside for emergency reasons they have to be. Anyway, it doesn't matter what that's all about but the door was open and we were like this close to calling his parents. Like I had my phone in my hand. Like we were so close. Teacher comes over and pats me and says, just found him. He had just picked up his stuff and moved. So then you go into the uncontrollable laughter. And I laughed and laughed and laughed because I did not know what else to do. Then cried. Then all the things. And obviously we all sort of unpacked it for a bit and we're like, oh, okay, everyone's okay." And you know, blah blah. blah. And lots of the stuff just went. There, then went to bed. They were fine. But there was three of us that sat up that just couldn't sleep. There was no way I was going back to sleep. But the other two kindly sat with me, and I kept saying to them, "Like, please go to bed. Like, I'm fine. I'm going to stay up, but please." But they stayed up with me, and Ally. It was. Yeah. It was it was a it was a lot. It was really really scary. And it was the responsibility that you have just sat with me from then on.
0: It's interesting because as I'm listening to you and as I was hearing your story, all I could think about was me as a parent and I'm like, I have never given enough credit to the teachers running camps. That's what my reaction to hearing what you're saying is. I'm like, I don't think I've ever stopped and considered that responsibility that you guys take on week in and week out, term on, term off, like, you know, i that's where my head went. I was just like, oh, my God, like, I need to go and give all the teachers a huge cuddle and a letter and just say, I appreciate you. I really appreciate you.
1: Because it's huge. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I mean, a a regular school day, there's a lot of responsibility, especially those that have allergies or medication or high needs for whatever reason that may be, behaviour, things, like whatever it is. But then you've also got just responsibility of students that don't have high needs, that don't have diagnoses, just just their, their life. Then you think, okay, the next level up is an excursion. So you're going away for the day and you've got responsibility around the safety of that. And then you think about one overnight camp, two nights away, three nights away. Some go away for a week. Some are literally in the middle of the bush. But also I think around like that middle of the night, like that middle of the night, like it wasn't daylight that just makes it so much scarier too, around his safety and how hard it was to find him in the dark. And we also didn't want to turn the lights on because then we were going to worry all the other kids. So the whole thing was protecting everyone else to feel safe and that everything was fine without them realizing and that was hard because as the panic grew and more and more people were walking around the gym trying to find this this student there were a few kids that woke up that we were just like oh we're just checking just making sure everyone's asleep it's you know obviously trying to be super calm but also trying to work out how do we find this boy without before calling his parents when we haven't even turned the lights on to actually do a head count like we counted we tried to count but their bodies were all like like you know it was just we tried there was so much that we tried in the spam of like 10 minutes to try and use numbers instead of just you know we all tried to count and we all got a different number because some look like bodies but it was a pillow and vice versa or a bag or you know like whatever that might be
0: so looking back now like it's been a while since since mm. that experience yeah, it's been years. What, yeah, yeah when even just telling it now like what's it like for you
1: yeah, I as I was like planning it to, to to come on and sort of regathering my thoughts about the event, I got really shaky. It definitely is something that's still strongly is strongly there when I relive it, and I genuinely think it was the first time professionally that I had had severe panic in an environment where I the narratives that I had told myself in the event and after the event but actually also the narratives I was telling myself before I even went, knowing what responsibility, like I already felt the pressure and the responsibility before the day it even started. So those narratives were there, then the narratives that I was telling myself in the moment, and then the narratives that happened after it. I've got a lot more self-compassion now about it, but it took me a really long time to sort of process it and to not have the, I'm not sure that embarrassment is the word, I don't think... I don't think I was embarrassed that at the end of the day we found him. That was pure relief. Like, that was just like, here's a story. It was scary, but we found him. So I think it was more relief than embarrassment, but a lot of self-doubt in myself and and my leadership qualities and my decision-making and and questioning, was it too dramatic too soon? Uh, I think that was my biggest thing. Like, did I make it a big deal too soon? And I asked everyone that was on the camp and they were like, no way. You couldn't find a student? Then you got another put per- like, no, it all, it all, there was a reason why it escalated. Don't, don't you know, put that on yourself too, but I had a lot of that. That's not what I
0: expected you to say. You know, when I was going to ask you what your narrative was after the event and I wasn't expecting the did I react too soon, I almost expected you to say did I react quick enough.
1: Yeah, no. Which was the opposite. Thought, because Here, of the outcome. I think maybe if he had moved to a, like a classroom or he was in another space but the fact that he was literally in the, in the hall, in the gym, but just in a different spot was like, yeah, like, yeah, I don't
0: know. So what did it mean for you though, going into future camps, future responsibility role? Like what did that,
1: how did that look for you? I think I had to rely on like emotional regulation was the biggest thing. Something that I kind of like wish I had had a little bit more in my toolkit and now do I was just going I was just going to ask that did you know about that back then because you know yeah, that's no. what we use now <laughs> yeah no not at all not at all but also kind of at the time i remember thinking because then we went on an actual two night camp later in that school year with that cohort and i just thought i have to stick to facts like my emotions and my, the narratives that i was telling myself in the moment and before and all of that was a very emotional narrative and a very like hard on myself I can be very hard on myself so I had very high expectations and I tried to just stick to facts like you know you've triple checked this done that's a fact you've got this policy everyone knows it done you've got the list of you know done and just sort of looking at the facts of like what's my to-do list as the leader like what's my responsibility here it is check it off double check it triple check it and the fact is that it's all there because the narratives that I was telling myself before that was not fact driven. It was still very emotionally heavy of like, "Oh my goodness, like I have so much responsibility on this trip." And there actually was that same year, at the end of the year that there was a camp the camp, there was a boy who had another boy who had asthma and actually was struggling to breathe. It was in the middle of the day, so it was different. It was the whole thing was different for some reason. Obviously, I had maybe adapted some strategies by then, but it was different. It was during the day. Not only did I have the staff from our school, but actually because it was on someone else's site, they actually take over. So even though it was my responsibility and I did have to call his mum to tell him that he's struggling to breathe, we've tried his puffer, it's not working, we ha- have him on oxygen now. The next step was the ambulance, but because of the way that the the, the policies work, the, the the people at the campsite take over. So I think I kind of just went, okay, I've got a difficult conversation to have to call his mum and to communicate with his mum because that's terrifying for her to hear and for me to calmly share it. But at the end of the day, the big decision was not falling on me like I felt it did earlier in the year. But then I had so much empathy for the camp people who did have that responsibility of him. But because they've had this experience over and over again, they were so calm. So I I think my biggest thing is that, you know, often these experiences, it's when it happens again and you can rely on those tools and 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 those things that you've learned when it happens again to be like, okay, this is what I've learned because this is what happened the first time. This has now happened again. And look what I can now do. But I hadn't I haven't fallen into that again. So it's hard for me to kind of say what I would do next time or because I I haven't had that experience again.
0: They're also so different. One is there's an absence, so someone was missing and you didn't know how to escalate, as in how serious do we take this right now because the outcomes can be astronomical versus you can actually physically see it. Do you know what I'm thinking about? When you get pregnant and the baby's in your belly, you don't know what's wrong with your baby if something's wrong, but when they're a baby and they're in your arms, you can hold them and see them doesn't make the situation easier it just makes it different because it's it's a bit more tangible you're responding to kind of someone that's having an asthma attack and it's like right we can see they're not breathing what's next what's next but when you can't find someone when they're not there when you're working out like it's the middle of the night do we wake up all the kids don't we surely they can't have gone anywhere the door can open like there's so many unknowns and uncertainty but in a very different way
1: and I was so glad again as a little bit of a self-doubt or confidence thing that we didn't end up calling the parents for then me then to call back and say, oh, we found him. And then there'd be like a, what is happening at this camp? How could you have lost? Like I was just so that I think <laughs> that would have added a whole nother layer to it if that call had been made and it was just timing. Like I was li- I literally had my phone in my hand and it was just timing that this other teacher had found him just before I I went to ring. That just yeah.
0: Did you question whether you were cut out to be a leader? Did it go to there?
1: I think it was less about can I do it? it? was more do I want to. Do I want this level of responsibility? Like there were so many things again when I unpacked it with the staff that were there, everything that we did was almost to the book. Like we did everything that we were meant to do we did. So I'm like, okay, well, in a crisis like that, even though i felt blank and whatever what did actually happen was in the, was in a in an order that they would expect so i think it was less about okay in a crisis can i do it and more about do i want that like do i want this level of responsibility like i know that this is a a rare situation of course it had never happened in a sleepover there before and so yeah i think it was more yeah do i want that level of responsibility how
0: did you navigate that that do I want this responsibility? How did you find a way through that?
1: I think while that question was lingering, I was also feeling like because we found him and because it was a good outcome, the next day and the following days, it was very much laughed at. It wasn't an embarrassing laugh at or anything like that. It was just, again, a little bit of a people just laugh because, oh my goodness, luckily you found him, but weren't you lucky and like kind of thing. That it was never really unpacked. And I tried to share that it had really affected me and that I'd I'd like to unpack it and I was feeling really emotional about it. But because everything was okay, it just kind of got brushed. And I think there was a lot of me that was just like, okay, this is, I've got to process this then on my own. The whole what I now understand around workplaces and things, there should have been a little bit of an unpacking. But so much of it was then, okay, what am I going to do to get over this and to be able to... Navigate my way through the rest of the year when we have got excursions, we've got a two day camp at the end. And I think, as I said earlier, honestly, it was trying to disassociate the emotion as much as I could.
0: Had you learned that somewhere else, or was that something that you were learning as you were going, or did someone help you work through that?
1: I think it was just over me processing it over time. I just was like, okay, there is so much, I have got so much emotion to this story. I feel every part of me feels this. Fear, panic, and shock every single time I retell the story, and then every time I honestly, every time I saw the kid or heard his name for the rest of the year, my heart sank. It wasn't like my heart was like, oh, look, he's here. It was the opposite. It was, oh my god, like, yeah. So, it, and that was frustrating me. Like, think of the positive, Amy. He's here. How about when you see him? You, you know, you're 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 excited that he's that it was all good, and you kind of smile and go, oh gosh, I couldn't. Every time I saw him, it it just, it did the opposite. And that's when I think I started to realise there's so much emotion attached to this, how about I just now look at the facts of it? We did this, this happened, da-da-da, da-da-da, everything was fine. And not dissing the emotion. I felt the emotion, I, I lived it, I let process it, I did all that. But I think to navigate it and to get through the rest of the year, I had to revert back to, okay, fact, and try to move the emotion where, when I had the capacity to be able to do that,
0: and that's a good example because there is a lot of conversations around: do we feel the feelings? Do we stay in them? Do we move through them? Do we compress them? You know, there's not a right answer. It's really individual. But for you, what I'm hearing is you—you you were with there. You did acknowledge it. You did sit with it. But then it was time to move on. It was no longer serving you. That emotion, as it was, was actually hindering you. Not not helping you live the life that you wanted to live. So it was like, well, what strategies can I put in place here to help me?
1: Yeah, and it was stick to the facts. Like I, you know, I the perfectionism and the high expectations I have of myself and that planning and organisation that that is a a strength of mine was that I think it was the self-doubt that I had doubted that I put the medication wrong and maybe I should have medicated him. I think that self-doubt was like, no, the facts were there. Like you had checked, -checked, double-checked, triple-checked, And even, like, he he didn't need medication. It wasn't until the morning. Like, that was all fine. But in the moment, that self-doubt I had of my, like, questioning myself, like, did you not medicate him when he was meant to be? And that's why he's run away and gone home and you're going to end up in jail and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, no, No. of course you tripled. Like, the fact, like, you did all the things that you were meant to do and you still in that moment obviously questioned yourself and that self-doubt of, like, just feeling like you went from here to, like this big
0: and I think we can all as we're listening whether you're a teacher a parent or someone's just like I'm thinking about 10 weeks ago my daughter went to Fiji on a school camp on day one they called me and they said we said to the school there is no way she can get sick she is going to be fine we've done the test here you go she is going to be fine day one they ring me they're overseas and they're like her kidneys are up and my husband and I were like oh that can't be right You know, give it another day. At no point did I consider the responsibility that teachers were taking on board to take her over or what they might be feeling in that moment that they have are overseas in this country where we may not be able to get the support we need from a hospital with this child that's kidneys are starting to go up by the hour. I flew over the next day. Like, honestly, I'm listening to you feeling like really this small because I'm like, I don't think I stopped to think about how it was for them. Mm. I was too busy in my head with my own emotion, with my own fears. Yeah. That's why I love these podcasts because it opens our eyes up Mm. to hear things differently, to experience things differently, to think about things differently. And maybe just maybe next time I might actually acknowledge the teachers a little bit more or or show my gratitude in a different way or, or go and say something to these teachers now after having this conversation.
1: Absolutely. And I think the the whole international is like a whole nother ball game. But I think again, the difference between the sleepover at the school when this happened and then the camp at the end where the responsibility was different was also that there was security at the camp at the end of the year. You know, there was, I felt like I was the only one that had any of the responsibility that night. And then when it went pear-shaped, it just felt like the like literally the world had fallen. Whereas in other situations on camps, the the responsibility is divvied a little bit or you know that they've got a first aid team or you know that they've got security wandering around. And even though that child still might go missing, there's kind of backup and there's kind of like other people to... And even though I had staff to help, I just felt this tremendous responsibility and at the same time, super alone that I felt like it was no one else's responsibility that he had gone missing except me. And... When I spoke to a colleague who was on it the next day, she was like, it was all of our responsibility. That's why you got us up. But I felt it. I knew that at the end of the day, I was the leader and that, yeah.
0: Hey, guys. Very quickly, jumping in to tell you about an exciting and rare opportunity. In March this year, we are inviting 25 senior leaders for three days to the High Performance Leadership Summit. Are you driven by the pursuit of high performance? Have you spent years navigating the complexities of the business world, striving for excellence? I share that same relentless pursuit, and I've discovered that some of the most invaluable insights into high performance have come from the most unexpected places outside of the confines of business. I want you to picture this, a curated, multidisciplinary approach to high performance, a team of exceptional individuals. Imagine learning from a three-time Australian Olympian, Sammy Kennedy Sim, who proudly carried the national flag at the last Winter Olympics. Add in David Ballard, the head of high performance at the powerhouse Brisbane Broncos NRL team, mastering excellence in high-pressure team sports. Now, most of you would have seen the grand final last year to think about where that team came from at the beginning of the season and where they landed at the end. Now throw in a military expert with active service experience and some organizational psychologists, experts in unraveling the complexities of our minds and our hearts. And to top it off, some seasoned business leaders who have lived and breathed high performance, high pressure situations, navigating boardrooms to leading successful multinational companies. This, my friends, is the recipe for the High Performance Leadership Summit in 2024, where worlds collide and lessons merge into a powerhouse of knowledge. This is not your average event. It's an intimate setting limited to 25 senior business leaders. There will be absolutely no passive experience here. Think engaging conversations, hands-on workshops, personalized insight tailored to your unique challenges. Imagine three days of immersive, transformative, unparalleled experiences. If you're hungry for more than just a conference, if you're ready to dive deep into the intricacies of high performance with like-minded peers, then this is your moment. I would love to invite you to join us. If you're interested, jump in the show notes, click on the link, book a conversation with me, DM me on LinkedIn I really would love to have a chat to you about this. Now let's get back to the episode. What would you say now, having had that experience, being able to reflect through, it sounds like you've done so much work in this space and able to look back on it and be like, huh, this is what happened, this is what I took away. What would you talk to emerging leaders about now with that experience?
1: Emotional regulation, I think. Emotional regulation, not just in the moment, but before having a toolkit to help me in in different situations, I hadn't even thought about a child going missing, like in lead up to it and you overthink it and whatever, it was more around allergies. Like we had kids with epipens. So it was, it was more around that fear and the the medical side of things than it was someone going missing or the fear of someone getting hurt. I think it's it's the it's the regulation around if something were to happen, what do I have in my toolkit or how can I help? Regulate in that time when there is a process that I can literally pick up a piece of paper that's printed, that's ready, that can be a step by step of what I do in an emergency in case I go blank. That you always know that you've, if you're trying to stick to the facts and you're trying to regulate the emotion, that you can always go back to something that's been pre-planned because it's all pre-planned. There is so much administration that goes into these kind of things these days that you've literally nutted out everything, but then in the moment you can have a clipboard with all this paper and it's like. I didn't have time to sit there and try to go through that to try and find this boy. But if I was able to just calm my nervous system as much as I could to think clearly, it would have just, I think, helped with the the level of panic that I then felt. And I think it's the panic that has then impacted me post the event. Like that panic moment of pushing the door open was the bit that I have just replayed and replayed and replayed.
0: I don't know if we would have ever been able to reduce The panic in that moment. However, had you had some tools maybe for the hour after when things were safe and everything was like, okay, we are safe now. What do I need to do now for me to calm my nervous system? Because I think when we are in a crisis and it was a crisis, so I think it it can be really hard. Those those hormones that run through our body Mm -hmm. and that fear that we have can actually serve us in that moment. It makes us act but it's what we do after that as well. How do we come back to base? So have you got other strategies that you use now?
1: Now? Well, interesting when I started to prep for this this morning and I could feel myself like reliving it and getting like worked up about, like literally had the shakes. I just went and did some mindfulness, like just trying to get back into the present moment and mindfulness isn't something that works for me all the time. I have to actually be quite worked up for mindfulness to work if I'm just feeling a little bit anxious about something or something's kind of bothering me I don't find that mindfulness is as powerful as I can physically feel my body shaking and kind of like short of breath starting to feel a bit sick that's when for me personally mindfulness and just coming back to the present moment and just putting something on for five or ten minutes and just listening to someone else's voice to calm my nervous system is super powerful I think had I had had that in the moment once it all happened and we realized everyone was okay. I could have calmed that way but what happened was we just kept talking about it and talking about it literally from by the time it all kind of ended it was probably 1.30 literally through to the first time, the first kid that woke up at like 5.30 a.m. Honestly, we probably unpacked the whole thing for that whole time and it just didn't help. <laughs> but it did in the time. Like we were all just like blah, blah, blah. But on reflection I'm like, oh, we should like that was – Yeah.
0: And I think it's important here to also highlight that when you talk about the mindfulness works for you, when you start to move up that scale, you know, when your nervous system starts to get higher and higher on alert, someone out there, it might be the opposite for them. You know, mindfulness might work for them really early on when they're between a zero and a one or a zero and a three. But once they go above a plus four, It's not the strategy they need in that moment. So it can be really helpful for us. I always think about it like traffic lights, you know. When we're in the red, what do we need in that moment? When we're in the orange, what do we need in that moment? And When we're in the green, what do we need in that moment? And the tools that work when you're in the green and you're thriving and, you know, you just want to kind of bring it back a little bit are very different to what you might need when you're in the red or post-red.
1: Absolutely, Yeah. And I'm such a black and white person sitting in the gray is a bit like, and I think the facts help me in the way that I think and compartmentalize things. It helps me with that black and white, that was right, that was here rather than sitting in this gray kind of, I think that's where the fact part has helped me compartmentalize it for me.
0: I used the example when I first went in, when I did my very first triathlon and I died, it was 6am in the morning. It was freezing cold I was like shaking on the side of the beach and I'm thinking what am I doing like why did I think this was a good idea I'm gonna get eaten by a shark for sure <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah if they're yeah. gonna find someone they're gonna find me and they're gonna eat my leg <laughs> and um, I'd never done an ocean swim like that before there's a longer story to that but I was standing there just thinking oh my God. and I got in the water and I'd prepped myself like you I'd prepped myself for that moment I thought about what am I gonna say to myself if I see a shark and what am I gonna do what am I gonna do if I see a stingray? What am I gonna do? Blah, blah, blah. What I hadn't prepped myself for was when I went into the water that I couldn't see anything. I thought I was gonna see everything. So when my head went under into the cold water and it was black, I almost hyperventilated and I went to task. So where you're talking about the facts, I went to what is the technique that I need to swim? Um up, lengthen. One, two, bubble breathe. One, two, bubble breathe. One, and I just kept saying that to myself: one, two, bubble breathe. Along with the mantra, you can't have a stroke and get bitten by a shark. And that got me through the whole swim. Those two things, going to task and having a good mantra that was totally relevant. Of course, you can get bitten by a shark after having a stroke. But I was like, no way. There is no way that those two things can happen to one person. But that is that task part that you're talking about because it was a way for me to kind of reduce the anxiety I was feeling in the moment and focus in on something that I could have influence over.
1: Absolutely. It's very similar. And like you said, it was just something that you hadn't thought of. And that was the same for me. I had thought of everything under the sun that could happen except losing somebody. And so then when that happened, yeah. What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> what yeah. do you do? What do you do?
0: And I can't believe we're almost at the end of the episode. So I want to ask you what you would do differently now. Like looking back through that time, is there anything that you would change?
1: Yeah, I I wish I had said to the senior leaders in the school I need to debrief this with you because I did share the emotion that was attached to it and the incident and as I said it was again not laughed off in about ba- I know when it says when people say you laugh it off I honestly didn't feel it as like a I didn't take that as a negative but in terms of like a any kind of bullying or like any of that but it was just more of a like this was serious like people are laughing this off and it's great that we found him, but like, I need to debrief this, like this has impacted me and I need, to, I need to share this so that if it were to happen again, we can cross-check that we did everything that we should have. And is there a way that we could have navigated this a bit differently and sort of get a bit of reassurance probably that actually what we did was the correct thing and that yes, it escalated, but of course it did because, you know, there, there was panic. So I think I'd really encourage people that if they're in a similar situation is to force that debrief. Be the voice for yourself.
0: What stopped you from asking for that debrief out of curiosity?
1: I think because we ended up finding him and everything ended up being okay and it was kind of being laughed off. and You were minimizing it. It's not yes. worth
0: the time or the voice or me not tapping someone on the shoulder and asking the next question.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was one other staff member that was quite heavily impacted by it as well and we unpacked it quite a bit in over the weeks, which I think helped because then there was someone that was there that felt it that knew and we, we sort of unpacked that over the time. But it was, yeah, it was, it was just going and debriefing it and sharing that what could have been different, what did we do well, what could have been better because I'm about to take them away again on excursions and camps and I just want to know that I did what I should have and I didn't. I did try once and it it just didn't and I just left it. But then I sort of held that anger for a little bit, so.
0: Because it potentially could have helped move this along a little bit quicker, you know. Like when we think about our states emotionally, it, it sounds like you sat in it for a longer time than what you wanted to. And so perhaps, and we'll never know, perhaps had you had an opportunity to debrief in a different way or to check in, like, was this right? What could we do differently? How do I ensure that this, you know, what have we got in process or are we going to change the process, even just having a conversation? The answer might be no. The answer might be like the process is perfect for what we need but just kind of having eyes over that might have been made the difference for you at that time.
1: Absolutely. And just
0: wishing that you went in and asked for that for you.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I it very much like kind of leads into to what wellness is and what we do is creating space for teachers not necessarily always in these emergency cases, but you know the, the complexity of the role of a teacher and the demands and, and the resources and all the things that are happening in the education system, teachers don't get a chance to reflect. And the last thing they do is look after themselves. And when teachers and school leaders are not well, they can't teach and lead well. They can't. They might mask it. They might be pretending. They might, but they if they are not well, then they cannot be doing their job to the best of their ability. And much of, over obviously, many years is my passion about giving teachers space to reflect on a whole bunch of things personally and professionally because so much of the professional development in the education world, of course, is around curriculum, students. Like there's so much around that, which is equally as important, 100%. But there is no point a teacher that's not well going to a professional development to learn something that they've got to implement to then come back and expect them to implement what you've just sent them on when they are not well. And you know by well obviously that's quite broad but that's what kind of has led into into wellness too.
0: You're saying well nest as in yes. the bird's nest right just yes, if people are looking for you
1: how do yes. they find you? LinkedIn. I'm most active on LinkedIn, but they can find us on our website, they can send me an email and Instagram I'm not really great on Instagram. <laughs> We're there, but mainly on LinkedIn. And yeah, I mean coaching, one-on-one coaching and team coaching is is a big part of what we do, but we also work strategically with school leaders with their strategic vision to to support the well-being of staff, so not coming in with, you know, kind of like a teacher well-being banner, you know, and just saying everything that the school should be doing and then forgetting that actually the school's a system and how you support your staff has to fit into that system. So it's very much strategic with the well-being of staff. A thought and not a last thought, but actually one of the first thoughts. So working strategically with school leaders on that. We also run some workshops, workshop facilitation to upskill staff in their in their health and well-being across a wide range of, of different topics and present at conferences as well.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Amy. I do love to finish every episode with asking our guests who or what in your world truly makes
1: your belly laugh. <laughs> It's actually awful, but it's it's awful because when I say it, you'll think, Amy, that's awful, but it, there's a certain part of it that's funny. What really makes me laugh is when people fall over. Now, that sounds awful. That sounds awful, but it's not the fact that they've fallen or that they're hurt. It's their reaction to the fact they've fallen, that they try and cover it up. And my brother and I, honestly barely laugh like send each other videos of it like have obviously been in the same situation before and and someone's fallen and it's awful but it's more their reaction of like trying to like trip or fall and then like trying to pretend everything's okay and that reaction that (laughs) like just gets like replayed and replayed in my mind (laughs) yeah and everyone's like Amy and Jake my brother like that's awful you know it's like oh it's not that they've fallen it's that that split second that we just replay and replay in our minds that just gets us, Allie, every time.
0: (laughs) You'll have to send me some. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. You're super busy at the moment, but thank you for finding the time to come on and talk to our beautiful listeners and community today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me And, and to people who are listening, who maybe have been in a similar situation or are kind of feeling the same. I just hope that this makes them feel like you're definitely not alone. And that of course I am always here, even if it's not to do with wellness, it's just, they just need a chat. Like, please feel free to reach out to me. I am more than happy to, to jump on calls and talk to people and honestly help in, in any way that I can.
0: While listening to Amy share her story, I couldn't stop thinking about the teachers who have looked after my children over the years. I want to go and give them a huge cuddle and say thank you for everything you have done. So if any of you are out there listening today, I mean it. Thank you so much. Now, if you're a teacher and you know that 2024 is going to be your year, that you are going to focus on your health and well-being, I highly recommend you reach out to Amy for a chat. I'll pop her details in the show notes along with our High Performance Leadership Summit, the link for March this year. And remember that the High Performance Leadership Summit only has 25 spots. This is a rare unique opportunity that you don't want to miss out on. If you know any teachers who may resonate with the weight of responsibility being discussed in today's episode, do them a solid and share this episode. Amy's unique experience leading a school camp sheds the light on a perspective we rarely consider. Let's spread the insights and support those who carry the educational torch. Next week, I interview Lindy and we have a conversation about highly controlled religious groups. She shares with us her first 20 years of her life and what it looked like and then the devastation when they turned their back on her. In that moment, her whole family and community were ripped away from her and she was faced with navigating a life in a world that she has been told is evil and bad. If you listened to episode 51 with Tim Elliott about the 12 tribes and found it interesting, you will definitely want to tune in next week. All right, guys, have a fabulous, fabulous week and I will see you Monday morning.